Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 14 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week had a unique, intimate perspective on some of the world's greatest rock bands at the height of their powers, photographer Ethan Russell. Inspired by Michelangelo Antonioni's film Blow Up, Ethan Russell moved from San Francisco to London in 1968 in search of a swinging scene that he didn't initially find, but then he got assignments to shoot Mick Jagger and John Lennon for Rolling Stone magazine, and his life changed. Soon, he was shooting on the set of the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus concert TV special, which featured Lennon and was directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg. Months later, he was snapping away in the chilly, gloomy Twickenham Film Studios as Lindsay Hogg filmed the Beatles rushing to work up songs for a TV special, concert, and album. These sessions eventually yielded the documentary film and album, Let It Be. Let it be. as well as Peter Jackson's three-part Get Back series on Disney Plus late last year. Russell's photos, including those shot from precarious positions during the band's Apple Rooftop concert, helped define the band during this period. He also shot the Beatles' final miserable photo session months later. But none of that was as harrowing as photographing the Rolling Stones' late 1969 free concert at Altamont Speedway, where the Hells Angels beat up concertgoers and musicians and stabbed someone to death. When Russell and the Stones were airlifted out of there, it felt like a wartime escape. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. Ethan Russell had many happier times shooting the Rolling Stones as their main photographer from 1968 to 1972. It was their greatest musical period, though also one marred by Brian Jones's death and heavy drug use, particularly by Keith Richards. Russell also worked with The Who at their peak, most famously shooting the cover of Who's Next on the Fly. Were the pee stains on the side of the monolith real? Well, one of them was. No one knows what it's like to be the bad man, to be the sad man. Behind the blue eyes. Now back in the San Francisco area, Ethan Russell has amazing stories and deep insights to share about the Beatles, especially John Lennon, the Stones, the Who, and the life of a rock photographer. He enjoyed these dream assignments at a time when photographers were given tremendous access and artists and their management weren't so obsessed with controlling their images. By the mid-70s, things had changed and Russell wasn't so thrilled about creating something referred to as product. Yet his images not only endured, but have become iconic. His photos can be appreciated in the recently released The Beatles Get Back Coffee Table book, as well as other fine art books that Ethan Russell has produced and sells. Don't let me down. If you're a fan of the art of capturing still images on film and you happen to enjoy the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, and the late 60s, early 70s golden era of rock, you're going to love this Carol Pop conversation with Ethan Russell. 
tell me about watching Get Back and and sort of what was that experience like for you to to watch it and how much did that experience sort of jive with your memory of actually being there at the time? It, it's it's such a massive thing, you know the the scope of it, the size of it, the fact that it exists, the fact that it's fifty years later, the fact that I know everybody in it, the fact that I was there, right. Um, the fact that I know a lot of the subtext stories about people squabbling about it, you know, um, it just, and in fact, I'm a huge Peter Jackson fan, right? But I found that I'm carrying a lot of water from my, at my own volition for Michael Lindsay Hogg, because there's not a frame of film without Michael, right? Who became the sort of fall guy for a lot of this, which is irritating. And, um, and so to me, it was, and it's, you know, and you're introducing the history to, you know, people that had no idea. And so for me, it's different in the sense that I was in those rooms. So all of the sort of revelation of being in those rooms is lost on me. Right. Be which I think other people are experiencing. But it was almost too big to have a simple answer. Not that you're asking for one, but um I found myself being compassionate for them in a funny way that I didn't expect because especially in the Twickenham stages, you start to, you really get the sense that they're alone, <laughs> you know, right. there's nobody next to them, you know, and, uh, and since I've, you know, talked about this and done various things over the years, it was nice to have some of my assumptions uh, sort of, um, validated, which is, I think, the the death of Brian Epstein was critical because he was the guy they used to say, go here, do that, you know, making their life a lot easier. Right. Uh, and then that vacuum really was left for Paul to fill the sibling nature of their relationship, which seems to me to be fundamentally probably if you had to use one word to describe the relationships that's probably it you know that they, they it's sibling rivalry a lot of right. it seems obvious right uh and so seeing it all play out they weren't revelations but it was but it's all wrapped in this phenomenal package you know it's sort of like Peter Jack, and he's done all the stuff that he does do, that he was sort of famous when I first heard about it. It was like a marriage made in heaven for everybody, right? I mean, they're getting the man who did uh, They Shall Not Grow Old, right? right. Which is, you know, and apparently, according to him, and I got to meet him, so that was a great plus for me. I was very, you know, happy to do that. Um, and, you know, the Imperial War Museum apparently gave him all the footage from World War One. Here you go. <laughs> You know, right. and he went back to New Zealand and 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 um, created "They Shall Not Grow Old" and 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 so everything about that was it seemed again made in heaven. The Beatles needed something like that, and you know, and they also needed somebody who was almost on their level, in my opinion. Right, so they really couldn't be. Of micromanaging too much and i don't have inside stories about the degree to which that was or was not true but i figured that i if i'm peter jackson i don't do that unless i have final cut you know uh and and so so I, it all it bodes so well right but also because it wasn't a movie he didn't make a movie in the traditional sense which is where it started right, right. uh the the thing that he made was an invention for our time. You know, where else do you, where else can you sort of release something that's nine hours long? 
right? I did a little research on this and, and the only thing I could find that was even remotely this long that I'd ever heard of, because there's a lot of Japanese and Persian and, you know, um, but it was Little Dorrit with Alec Guinness, which was five and a half hours, right? But the idea of, of saying, it's just, it's so, it's, it's sort of mind boggling on all levels because, okay, so now people are going to sit still for nine hours. Where is that written in gold? Do you know? Uh, but my experience was to be, it was actually happened on my birthday. <laughs> the, I, the second one, the mm. was on my birthday. And so I had my family and friends here and we were having a birthday party and we got a 70 inch television and, you know, all the things that were, and made an event out of it. Right. In a funny way is validating lack of a better phrase in the sense that I knew I was there, but that was not generally known. And, uh, I got, you know, I got a lot of emails and I don't think as many as Glenn and his coats, but, uh, <laughs> uh, from people saying, you know, great to see you there that have known me forever. I've seen my books where the pictures are published and never really, it's a, it creates a different, a different response in a funny way. Like I say, I was compassionate towards them in a way that I didn't expect to be, that they really were lost at sea and they didn't know what they were doing. I mean, it felt like in many ways the Twickenham stuff, because I didn't come in until like the third or fourth day of Twickenham. That's when I showed up. Right. Um, and I was only and I wasn't wasn't hired to be there the whole time until a little bit later after they saw the pictures from Twickenham. And. And so it wasn't like a daily experience for me. And it was it was huge. But I'd just come from the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, which was why I was there. Right. Because I knew everybody. Right. And it was England. I mean, every piece of this has sort of a moral behind it or a lesson or something. So I just drove down to Twickenham Studios and walked in. You could never do that today. Right. right. I mean, that's so impossible. Right. I, I just drove down there because I knew him. The 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 uh, soundstage door was open and I just sort of stood in the corner and watched for a bit. Neil Aspinall showed saw me there and long story short, said, do you want to come down? And then I ended up working for them all the time. But the initial part of it was just to be in that big space and to have questions about it myself. Now uh, they're 27, right? Right. I'm 23. I'm an American. I have no business being there. So it's all like, you know, all reality is sort of at bay, but even as a, a um, I wasn't really a working photographer. I was just literally starting my career and, and to, to it was just like, well, what are they doing here? Right. Why? Are, what is the largest group in the world? Which, you know, I think Americans felt that more than the British did. I mean, I think the British, all of them, all those early rock and rollers had this sort of, well, it's better than being bombed by the Germans. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 the, and all of them, Mick Taylor, who I interviewed for something, um, was it was just that that's where you looked. You look to America, you look to American rock and roll. There was nothing here. Right. There was nothing for us to be attached to that was good. So everybody's looking at America. I didn't know that. You know, I sort of I was no, I'm old enough. I wanted to be Elvis. All of them wanted to be Elvis. Everybody wanted to be Elvis. Right. And and but I thought by the time I went to England, it was like Elvis was kind of gone. And I didn't, he wasn't like in, he wasn't present, if you will, as an active kind of thing. And I felt like the Beatles had taken over everything. 
Absolutely. You know, music had taken over everything. This is 1969, right? Well, that was one of the things that struck me so much is you're thinking there, this is the biggest band in the world. And they're in the studio that none of them want to be in that looks like it's miserable and the sound quality isn't good and the vibe isn't good and it's chilly. And it's because, you know, it seems like from the way it was presented, Dennis O'Dell had it for an extra month because he was going to be shooting the Magic Christian there. And so the Beatles are kind of following along with this other like there's there's a sort of tail wagging the dog kind of thing going on whereas like now you think of artists being so empowered that you know like taylor swift is not going to do one thing that she doesn't want to do but the beatles are all sitting there like well what are we doing here well i guess we'll just sort of go along with it and 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 the other thing is that they had just done the white album and and when i looked back at the dates of it i mean they finished recording the white album in october the white album came out in November and beginning of January, they're in Twickenham. I mean, so there's like, they've just done this massive double album with 30 something songs on it. Plus, you know, Hey June revolution. And then boom, they just have to turn out another record in two weeks and a live show and a movie and TV show or whatever else it was. It was a lot. And that, that that's completely on point for me, which is that it speaks volumes. Everything you just said, is true in my experience as well. Speak volumes. The and as an American, I could not. I mean, these were the guys that wrote "Nothing You Can Do That Can't Be Done," right? right? You know, that they had any constraints on them whatsoever was unimaginable, right? And that they could fail at anything was unimaginable, and that they would have these kind of squabbly difficulties was unimaginable. All of it was unimaginable. But even to a kid who had no idea about show business, none, zero, right? No, and, you know, so I'd never seen anybody make a record, <laughs> you know. I didn't know any of that. Rolling Stone wasn't invented yet, right? I don't think. Maybe they were. But it was awfully close to that. So the, while music was this huge thing in America, I mean, Woodstock's that's, Wood, Woodstock's that summer, right? Right, yeah, a little later. A little bit later. And, and you know, and there's sort of 400,000 people on a hill Every one of them there, in my opinion, in Ethan's history of the world, uh, coming from rock and roll radio, right? Uh, from the same songs everybody's listening to, it's got that technological piece to it, right? Which is radio brought gave the common experience to all these people. The you know Bill, you know Astrid Lindstrom, Bill Wyman's wife in Sweden, you know. Glenn Johns in England, Ian Stewart in Scotland, so-and-so in Liverpool, and me in San Francisco. We're all having the same, you know, Everly Brothers tune played. And that was new as an experience, right? But I so I agreed completely. And, and then I, later on in life, I went back to America and I went was working in Los Angeles in the 70s, which is the mid-70s, really. Uh, which is the start of the really what I call the infantilization of musicians, you know, and exactly what you described. There's some sort of unknown artist trying to get a deal. And it's I guess it must be late enough because I was doing videos. So so it was about getting this person to do a video and this really no resume, <laughs> no nothing wouldn't get out of bed, do you know? And it was like, it was shocking to me, right? Hmm. Compared to these people, they all had it. Uh, they all had this work ethic, right? The Beatles had it, the Stones had it, they all had it. And and for me, over time, it's the one thing you hear not a lot about, which is that none of this happens if these guys haven't got the work ethic that they have, you know, especially Stones and Druggers, blah, blah, blah. 
it just was shocking to me that they had these issues and it seemed a ridiculous place to make music. But once I had those sort of ancillary feelings, if you will, I'm, you know, I'm there to try and take pictures and pictures. Uh, I couldn't have told you this at the time, but I realized over time that, that the minute for me, the camera goes in front of your eye. It's like, you put earmuffs on, right? Because it all, all your energy goes to the eye or all my energy goes to my eye. And so it becomes about seeing, it doesn't become about knowing what's going on or particularly. Um, right. So, so you're not going like, ooh, that Let It Be song sounds like a song for our ages. <laughs> you know, that'll be no. played. No. That'll be played forever. Right. No, 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 none of that. And the fact that I'm there is so absurd. It's an absurdity that I'm there. It's an absurdity that, that I'm standing like four feet away from the Beatles. And the last thing I can imagine, this is generally true. The last thing that I can imagine is that anything I think about this means anything, right? You know, that I'm going to have some sort of judgment about how they make music. I mean, it's absurd, right? Um, so I was just glad to be there. And anything, so I was probably the happiest person there, frankly, you know, because I had the least responsibility, right? And, and, and I just felt good to be there, whereas all the problems that you see in the in the film are there. And and I remember them sort of all the whispers as people are about to put the mic in the in the vase. <laughs> Michael's got the mic in his coat and he's going, I'm gonna put it in the vase and record this meeting, right? Um and so I had enough awareness of that kind of stuff going on. Uh -huh. But George left, George left, you know. And I didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, and so I stop. And then when it, it boots up again at Apple, I'm just, I show up, right? Um, but there wasn't, it, it didn't feel good. I mean, it definitely didn't feel good. But but it, why they were fighting was beyond me. But it did seem like sibling. It did seem everything that I, as I grew older and I got to think right. about it more, all made sense. When I was thinking about this, because I was thinking, I was trying to get my head around it, and I don't know that you do get your head around it. It's the fact of the matter, really. First of all, it's, if you, I think it's a 52-year event now. It's no point. You're not talking about Let It Be in 1969, right? You're talking right. about everything that's happened in between that is now created as a new event, a new kind of media event, given that I'm watching it on a 70 inch television, for Christ's sake, I might as well be in the theater. It sounds better than ever did in any movie theater in 1969. And that experience was not was not part of the period of, from which all of this comes. Right. And is now available to people. So that changes it. That's the technology of the broadcast, the fact of what Peter Jackson is able to do every one of those things changes it, not to mention having forever and as much money as you could possibly want to cut it. Do you know what I mean? You know, it took a year of the stuff that I've read for him to basically write the software. This is the genius of it, but it's a genius of technology. It's a genius of a person using technology, right? It took him a year to write the software to be able to separate the voices from the Nagras because the Nagras were running you know, all the time, everywhere. And the mic was put next to them and they're playing guitar, right? right? So the guitar comes up and drowns out all the voices. So it's a miracle, but it's a, again, a technological miracle that they, that Peter Jackson could do that and separate out the voices and all of that stuff all creates a kind of, you know, ending event that's different than it could have ever been. And that that's kind of, just by way of trying to get 
one's head around what one's looking at. And then, and then, but what occurred to me, unhappily, it's kind of a cliche, but I think it's accurate, which is the, which is the old saw about an elephant being described by six blind men. Right. So one man reaches the tongue and says it's, you know, oh, it's narrow and it's thin and another. I can't remember the rest of the descriptions, but the, right. but the net net of it is they all get it wrong. <laughs> right. They're all like touching the elephant and getting it wrong because nobody is able to see the whole picture and put the whole picture together. It feels very much like that. You know, every single piece, everything, my, what I have to say about it, what Michael Lindsay Hogg has to say about it, what, what Peter Jackson has to say about it, what Ringo has to say about it. Everybody's, you know, touching a piece of the elephant and describing what they feel. Right. Well, so is get back the whole elephant then, or is this just a bigger chunk of the elephant than we've ever seen? The elephant that they're all touching couldn't exist without the new get back. Right. right. That, that's the net net of it. Right. So maybe before they nobody was touching that elephant. It wasn't there to touch. Right. <laughs> you know? uh, and so and then you add that's why the 52 years part of it is interesting to me, because then you add the, the dimension of history, knowing what we know now, the sadness of not really having contemporaneous uh, feedback from two of the principals. John's not talking about it. And and uh, George is not talking about it. And so it feels like rem remarkably difficult to get your head around as something that's simple enough to say, oh, what'd you think of the movie? I see a lot of what I uh, what I see is the sort of almost political currents around the participants. Right. You know, Paul saying what Ringo saying, what Michael Lindsay Hogg is saying. Peter Jackson is being, you know, one thing is, thank God he was in New Zealand during, a, <laughs> you know, because he because he had that. I think he had that distance built in and that cultural distance is a real thing, you know, clearly a fan. Right. Which is great. But a distant enough from it, you know, and accomplished enough through his past work that he can have a fresh take on. It. He's got the chops to be allowed to do the fresh take. He's got the skills to do it. And he has the time and space to do it because of the pandemic. Otherwise, we don't have an eight-hour movie without the pandemic. It's mind-boggling, right? And it's obviously well within his capacity to deal with scope. Because that's what he does. That's what Lord of the Rings was. The scope right. is phenomenal, right? And his ability to deal with technology is there. You see it there, Right. But it's not, you know, my, this is a little tough, but I say it anyway, right? When I, when I saw like the fourth shot of Lord of the Rings, I said, my response was, if I was George Lucas, I'd kill myself, you know, because it was so accomplished, you know? Um, he has this really visceral capacity to take stuff that's massive in detail and historical and bring to it the ability to, you know, change motion, which he did in They Shall Not Grow Old. That was phenomenal. That had never been done. You'd never seen a film of people in 1918 you know, walking like a normal person, you know, not going, e -e 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 -e. I right. mean, it's phenomenal what he did. So all of that he had in his sort of toolbox when he started this. And then he had the time and the money. And, and you know, it's just all so big. And yet it inherits all the narratives of jealousy and the politics of the time and Alan Klein, you know, right. 
which, you know, and him, I mean, very sort of interesting. I, I hadn't thought of this, but kind of Trumpian in his self-centeredness. It's interesting because when they people think of, oh, Let It Be is about them breaking up. And I'm like, well, yeah, but they went and did Abbey Road and, you know, Ballad of Johnny Oak and all this other stuff after Let It Be. You know, Let, Let It Be was what they did right after the White Album when they weren't getting along that great. And they still, you know, they still obviously had tensions the rest of that year, but they did a lot after Let It Be. But, you know, there's sort of the, the, well, Yoko broke up the Beatles and blah, 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 blah. And when I'm watching it and John first mentions Alan Klein, I'm like, there's your, that's the tell. That's like the, that's the beginning of the end right there is when John is saying he's meeting with Alan Klein because it's going to be the three of them against Paul, who is right about Klein, but also you know, maybe not so smart in trying to push his in, new in-laws to manage them because they're going to, the other three are going to object. And, you know, they, all the bitterness was over that. It was never, you could, you know, you could see that it wasn't at least openly the Yoko stuff, but if the Alan Klein stuff, that's the seed of the end right there. Well, absolutely. You know, and there's, you know, again, the depth of all this, right? The, the sort of, especially if you're on the inside. So it's all the same people, right? So right before Let It Be was the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, right? right? The Rolling Stones didn't have any money. They didn't have any money. Klein controlled all the money. They didn't have the money to do the circus, right? And to me, it's extraordinary. This is, and I've never heard anybody write about this or talk about this or anything, which is, you know, why did Mick Jagger sort of give John which is my understanding, I don't have it on a inside level, that, uh, that why did Mick Jagger give John, well, Klein, yeah, Klein. Klein had done nothing but screw them. So why was Jagger allowing Klein to be sort of even at the table with any kind of sort of, even a neutral sort of position around him you know they literally i know this for a fact they didn't have any money you know brian jones was writing alan klein saying can i please have five thousand pounds hmm. you know it's like that and 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 so you know that was klein klein was you know klein was you know if I, i've heard stories so i don't know that they're true but you know i do know that that they had a terrible time just getting basic money to live on, right? So that's when they were fired. They were in the midst of firing him shortly after all that was going on. Then they fired him right around the rock and right, right around the concert in the park, right? And started Rolling Stones Records, which is only later that year. Yeah, I think in theory they they had a higher royalty rate, and John was like, "Oh, we can get a better royalty rate if we use this guy." And he's this tough talking New Yorker, and John. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. John, that, but, but yeah, As, are you are you wondering whether Mick was kind of sandbagging John? Well, no, it's, that's yeah, no, no. I don't think he. I just you know, I don't think so. But I don't understand why there wasn't like why you didn't warn him off him. Glenn sort of tried to, right? You know, right. And then you can see that. And then and then Klein goes and tries to take. I mean, from a personal point of view, Klein killed the Let It Be book that was coming out with the album in order to do a better deal with United Artists. And if what I read is correct, he was trying to use it to get himself a seat on the United Artists board. The fact that he had a new Beatle record. So it's Trump. I mean, that feels Trumpian to me. Uh, you know, it's the same kind of, you know, self-interest dri driving, you know, allegedly the work you're doing with your clients kind of thing. So anyway, the part of it is, is that uh, I don't know about George because I didn't know him that well. 
and Ringo, I think, is not really a player in this kind of stuff. Uh, but John, with me and with millions of people throughout his life, would become extremely enthusiastic about some new thing that came into his life. It was who he was, right? So this feels great, right? And and he would go after it. And, and Klein just fit that, and they needed it. And Paul made the right decision, as you said. Right. And you mentioned the Let It Be book. So this is a booklet of your photos that you were shooting during the sessions and it came out in with a british copy of copies every of Let- everywhere in the world except the united states i don't think i've ever even seen it well it fell apart upon receipt it was so cheaply bound and it looked remarkably like the Callaway book, right? In, in terms of design and black and white, and then, you know, sections that were transcripts of the, their conversations, right? And then it was printed badly. And it was, but I, who knew? I didn't know anything about any of that. I didn't know how you printed a book. I didn't know anything. So, uh, and, the, and it was bound, it, whatever, whoever made the decision about the binding, it just literally fell apart in your hands. Wow. You know, it's kind of like you had a 164 page book and all of a sudden you had a wall full of Beatle pictures you put on your wall because they fell out of the book, right? But it was it was one of those, for me, it was like, I just assumed I'd be famous, you know, when the Beatle album came out when it didn't really happen because all the people are really, I mean, the Americans are in many ways the biggest fans, I think. And it just didn't happen. Right. But it was fine that it didn't happen actually, you know, a blessing as those things turn out to be. When you were shooting the stuff, because there were so many other film cameras and, you know, Negra recording devices and everything else going on, d- did you become a little more invisible? Like, like they were, they, they had to be used to being filmed all the time anyway. So, whereas if you're like, you know, just, just, if it's just you with them, you're going to become more of the focal point, but if it's you with all these other cameras, you know, maybe they're not noticing you as much. Well, I think that, you know, there's pictures of me, which are sort of shocking, but you can even see them and get back to where I'm standing behind Ringo and I'm just, you know, I'm eight inches from him, you know, or I'm sitting down, I remember this for some reason. Well, sitting at the feet of John and Yoko shooting back at him and I, and I've got a one Oh five lens. So, you know, I'm, if I'm, if my camera is five feet from his head, I doubt it, you know, it's close to that kind of distance. So it's, I'm just right there. So I don't think that they see me. And one of the things uh, a friend of mine asked me if they, you know, they said hi to me in the morning. And, the, you know, the fact is, I don't think I said hi to them because I don't I don't want that relationship. It's not not that I was conscious of this, but I don't want that relationship when I'm working, because then when you go to take a picture, people smile at you. <laughs> hi, right. Ethan. You know, and I don't want that. That's not what I want. I don't want anything to do with it. It's also not who I am. It's not how I shot. At one point, I was trying to figure when I was later on, like within the last five years, I was thinking I'm, I'm doing this new book and I'm going to have to go out and talk about it. And people are going to ask me about my photography. And I'm never talking about my photography. I'm always talking about the, the history or what it meant to me, the music meant to me and what music meant to my generation. And I, so I thought, well, where did all this come from? And the image that came to me, it just made sense to me. And I, and I really believe it when I was, you know, I was, so I loved, I was an Elvis kid, but that was Elvis. And then Elvis was gone and this is not related, but my parents had a ranch in Carmel Valley and quite a large one. And I used to go hunting for blue jays, 
right? For some reason, my grandmother felt it would be good if there were no Blue Jays on the property. Uh, hmm. And so I would go out with a 22, a little small, a, a single shot, right? 22 caliber rifle, right? And when you're, if you want to shoot a blue jay, they're not flying in the air. It's not a shotgun. You, you, they're going to be lit on a tree down in the orchard. That's where it was. And and I would approach them really. And you can't. You have to be so quiet and so careful. You're hunting, right? You know. And then you get to the angle that you need to get your shot. It's so parallel, right? And you get one shot. You don't get thirty six pictures. You get one shot. Right. And and that's totally how I shot almost always. Well, at least when it was documentary before I became a before I learned studio photography and all the rest of that. And that's how I shot. And that's how I shot them. Simple as that. You know, and I would go in and shoot three or four pictures. Right. Maybe I'd go in and I'd be sitting facing John and Yoko and I'd take seven pictures. And then I'd move out as quietly as possible. And and yet I got remarkably close to them. I mean, I was at Paul's feet. I was I was just there in the middle of it. And there's a picture was somewhere. And I probably have it and could show you. But regardless, it's like the sh- it's a it's the shot where you're sort of looking Billy's to your right. And then it's, you know, uh, Paul to your left, Ringo, John and Yoko and George on the far wall. And I'm just smack in the middle of it, <laughs> just right in the middle of it, you know, right. You know, uh, but that's, that's how you got the pictures. And then I think because I, I didn't ever raise the ruckus and I was quiet and I tried not to shoot if I knew they were doing a take, you know, they were always shooting. Right. But then every so often they'd be doing a take. And then you knew that the, you don't want to be shooting because the camera, because of the sound of the camera. Right. right. But You know, that's what kind of it was like. And then it was like every day and then it got to be normal. So I think it's that anything you do day after day gets normal. And, and it was kind of normal. After you'd moved to London, like the first big shoot you did was Mick Jagger. And then you had John Lennon with, with Yoko and, and their cat. I shot John in his basement flat the first time i ever shot him sort of the next session after jagger right and then we went up to abbey road real quickly and then the the john and yoko session he invited me to his house okay the the black cat that session is just totally different got it and then and then the get back stuff was after after that how are they how are they different as subjects like how much of a difference does does the subject make whether it's mick jagger or john or john and yoko and then you're moving on to you know all these other you know beatles and people like like do you get better pictures of them depending on what their attitude toward this whole process is or is it just a matter of capturing whoever they are i think i think the the you know, you'd have to, of course, ask them if they felt I was invisible. But for all intents and purposes, they didn't react to me. Right. So, uh, you know, Ringo will Ringo's sort of famous for like all of a sudden making a gesture like he does with Heather in that thing. You know, he could right. do that. I don't think he did that with me. I just was I think I might as well be part of the furniture, you know. Uh, and and so so no is the answer to your question, I think. I, I, so Mick know. and John were similar as subjects. 
Well, they were very the diff, The difference is, and I, I again very didn't really figure this out late in life because what happened with photography, a couple of different things, and music photography in particular. First of all, there was no such thing as music photography back then to speak of, right? Um, and so, therefore, there weren't music photographers, right? Uh, and and then over time both in the sort of this is the historical sort of stuff that I interests me. What happens is prior to sort of this particular era of rock and roll and, and Elvis is outside it too. Rock and roll is kind of outside of the entertainment business initially. Right. It's not Hollywood. You know, it's, it's a little bit off to the side, right? And then it becomes huge and then becomes part of the entertainment business and the entertainment business and show business are about moving product. That's what they're about, right? And, and so over time, the photography became, you know, even my later stuff with Linda Ronstadt, while I like it, is still is moving towards product photography because that's what they want. Right. So you're moving from, and I was not good at that, but the difference dynamically is when you, when I'm shooting the Beatles or when I'm shooting Mick Jagger in the early days, they're engaged in something different. Right. And then what happened is we're going to do a photo session. Right. So what the fuck is a photo session? Right. There's almost nothing that's more abstract than that concept either. I'm going to have somebody I'm going to stand here and have my photograph taken. You know, that's nothing any of them do in real life. Right. And and it puts all the onus on the photographer. And of course, the really brilliant photographers like Abaddon can get them into a situation like that and then make the moment happen. Right. right. That's what they do. Right. But it's not particularly what I did. I was too shy. I kind of could do it, but it was a terrible strain on me. I hated it, right? Because all the work was on me, right? And when I'm doing the kind of work that we're talking about here, they're engaged. So they're not looking at me because they're doing what they're doing, right? And if I'm sort of careful not to be in their eyeline and various things like that, then I don't think they pay much attention to me. It's the way it should be. Well, and even a post photo, like one of your most famous shots is the cover of Who's Next? And right. On one hand, that's the post photo. On the other hand, that is not a, you know, band, you know, sitting around, you know, composing for you in a studio or something. It's like you guys pulled off on the side of the road and found this monolith and, you know, Pete takes a piss on it and you put piss stains on the rest of it and, right. and came right. up with this way to make it work. But it's not like a glam shot. It's still, it still looks like something you sort of observed. It's just a bizarre thing to have observed. Exactly correct. And then the thing is, is like people go, how did you have that idea? And I thought, how can you have, how can you have that idea? How can you imagine that you can have that? Idea? <laughs> right. Uh, it just, it just was, it was an improvisation is what it really was. If you, if you sort of, look at it like that i mean we were and it was that it was moving towards that thing where you're doing a photo session though because that's what we were doing we were driving around between gigs and they needed a cover so it had that element to it it wasn't like they were doing something and i was photographing it but nobody knew what they were doing and i didn't know was, nobody knew what they were doing and the obvious association was what, what was obvious, which was that these things, nobody knew where they were. No, I didn't know where they, what, the, what they were, where they were, didn't know where I was. Right. And, but it looked like, it looked like 2001. So that was the sort of iconic starting point. And then the rest was made up. Right.
did they did they have the title who's next already or was that later i think they had it but i don't know because it was based on his it was sort of glenn coming into his lifehouse project right so the songs were written for something called lifehouse uh but i don't the answer is i don't know but i do know that that it was a that when i was brought in to work on that till when we got a cover we didn't have a cover until you know after i got that shot you know we were trying to come up with covers we were trying to come up with ideas for covers and they were all pretty dreadful and nothing i was doing was working particularly well because pete always used to say to me tell us what to do and of course which is the last thing i wanted to do right but pete was like tell us what to do right and i wouldn't because i couldn't almost you know and and so then it then it just sort of happened. So within the time that we shot that until the time that the cover went to America f- to be produced f- was like six hours. Right? And you and you put a different sky in also. The sky came from a um, and that was sort of there was a f- kind of famous cover. If you're into that concept shot by a guy called Bob Seidemann for Blind Faith. Right. Right. The girl with the with the airplane, right? And I always thought it was a pretty fabulous cover. I thought Bob Seidman was a great photographer, and and you know it was kind of sliced and diced. It was exactly the same thing, and I liked that. And then of course this real sky was gray, was England, right? So it you so it was sort of like it needed something, and that sky came from something else I shot for the hoop, right? I didn't sort of have it in the drawer. One when we were when we were like trying to figure out what to do and I was trying to, you know, they, I shot something for going mobile, which was part of that whole thing right. house and everything and Pete's thing. And then we went out and shot, uh, on the downs South of London, uh, and uh, the, his Land Rover it was, you know, it was almost looked like a Land Rover ad, frankly. Right. Uh, but sort of Land Rover traveling along with it's, headlights on and this great big sky behind it we just stole the sky so yeah and, and the title who's next is funnier if it's if you look at it in the context of people peeing on a monolith like all right, right. who's next? right right, right. I no, no and it, it was not definitely not motivated by that yeah it was a happy accident so to right, speak. a happy accident absolutely and the and the other piece of that is is that pete was the only one that could pee right so all the other <laughs> P spots are, you know, if you, if you know what a 35 millimeter film can looks like, right. It was going out into that sort of whatever it was that it was embedded in, which of course it's England. So it's all got little pools of water everywhere, you know, so fill up the film can and pour it on the side. It's all very, very high end work. Um, Yeah. The the opposed studio session. Did you, uh, going back to get back um, when I was watching it, I was struck by how, kind of gaunt and sort of passive and sort of out of it john seems at the beginning and then how he really sort of comes to life as the as the thing goes along so that by the end he's much more engaged creatively and everything else and maybe less stoned or i'm not sure what was going on i know that that was during a period where you know it's been reported that he and yoko have been doing heroin but i'm wondering if when you were experiencing that if you sort of had if you felt the same way that early on he was kind of out of it and then you know kind of you know became I don't think any of them look particularly healthy in Twickenham, really. You know, Twickenham was so sort of grim, right? And and yet, you know, it's always this thing where 
it may have been miserable for them, but it wasn't miserable for me. <laughs> you know, sure. I was I was in this room standing eight feet from the Beatles. So I was happy as I could be. But I wasn't I wasn't having an out-of-body experience, but there was nothing for me not to like, right? But they were miserable as appropriately for all the reasons we've discussed, right? So yeah, John looked like that. And I've heard the same rumors. I don't know that they're true, but they might be true, right? Uh and it's and I had this because I read an interview because Michael's out on the circuit, Michael Lindsay Hogg is out on the circuit, sort of talking about the things from his point of view. And and there's a comment where they're talking about whether about the ending, right? I love this. I think you'll like this too. I don't know if it has any bearing whatsoever on on sort of the main narrative, but, but so they're trying to come up with an ending, and Michael's saying Tripoli and you know roof isn't on the table right. yet. This is this, this, this you know, and Yoko, and this is so so much of this stuff is it is like the modern equivalent of divided by a common language, right? It's complete. I, that's what I learned at Altamont. Altamont's all about that. You know, the Rolling Stone 69 tour, it's all about the us importing them and them importing us back to England and believing us, in other words, believing in the festivals, believing in all, it's not the English, right? And then coming back thinking that's all fine and having no idea and having English Hells Angels on the stage who are 14 year old kids, you know, who look, and I have pictures of one of them taking off their long hair. There's a skinhead, he just took off his hair, put it back on and it's all about the costumes. It's all about costumes. England can put on costumes I think this it's all my own stuff, but I, I think it goes back to, you know, women, men playing women on the stage, right? It didn't matter. You put it on. That's what you are. And then you do it and then you take it off and you're whoever you are. Americans put on uniforms. <laughs> Americans, you know, put on clothes. And so, you know, the Hells Angels aren't wearing a wardrobe, right? They're wearing a uniform, Right. The English Hells Angels are putting on play clothes, right? So there's always this difference between these two cultures, which, you know, we all, well, at least speaking for myself and speaking for a lot of us, we all felt like we were all doing the same thing, going the same train, going to the same place, you know, and changing the world. We all thought that, you know, and we all made these assumptions that we were all understanding each other. We were, there was just no, it wasn't parallel just wasn't the same thing at all. And so Yoko goes, this is the point of the story. Yoko goes, while they're trying to come up with an ending, Yoko goes, does it need an ending? Right. <laughs> you know, and all you and everything is like New York conceptual artist, right? Perfectly legitimate question. You know, if you're coming from that place, right. right. You know, and yet poor Michael, you know, and, <laughs> you know, how are you, he can't answer because that can't be on the table. Does it need an ending? Right. But she's asking it and John's digging it. So it's spaghetti soup, you know. Um, it's interesting that you you shot at uh, the Let It Bleed tour that wound up with Altamont. Right. And and then you also obviously shot, you know, the Get it, Get Back sessions that, that uh, begat the Let It Be. So it's two films that came out where you were part of a much longer process um did you have sort of a sense of disconnect with either or both of those films or one less or more than the other like did they sort of capture what you experienced in that kind of reduced form as opposed to this long thing that get back is i don't remember 
the original Let It Be, particularly. I went to see it in London. None of them were there. I was there. Uh, you know, my pictures were 60 feet high on Piccadilly Circus, so that's what I'm thinking. That's cool. You know, um, I, I don't, I, when I left the theater, I don't remember any good feeling about it. I don't remember being depressed. Do you know what I'm saying? But, but so I barely remember that. The Gimme Shelter film, was different and and the big i have a huge book which i don't have here but which i wish i could show you it's massive it's overbuilt right it's like one of these things it took me like five years to do it right and and why it's relevant here is because gimme shelter was not the rolling stones 1969 tour and part of the reason i did this book was to do a book on what the tour was like well right Gimme Shelter was a movie about Altamont. It had nothing to do with the tour, right? And Altamont didn't have anything to do with the tour. Altamont was this thing. And in the context of what I've just been saying, which is the American, the English are trying to do what the Americans want when the American, you know. And so the, since they got, and I know a lot about this because I really worked on this, and then Stanley Booth wrote a great book about it, which was useful and blah, blah, blah. Um, from the minute the assumption by Americans was we're all in this together, right? Of course, there are leaders, right? The Rolling Stones are leaders. They've got to be against the war in Vietnam. We're following them. We're all together. That's the assumption. And that's what the Rolling Stones run into when they come into America. The minute they start that tour, are you against the war in Vietnam? They won't answer it. Right. They don't answer it. Jagger never answers it. Keith says, we assume, you know, where we stand kind of thing, because these are people that were that are, you know, by that point, by they've been on the road for six years. Right. You know, they're traveling musicians and that's what they are. And, and they say it, you know, we're, you know, it makes sense. We're primarily, you know, or Keith, we're primarily musicians. That's really what we do. So this whole thing of this generational movement and everything that was true for me really was true for me. And really, I think was true for a lot of Americans just didn't mean anything to them. If anything, they thought it was silly and they didn't want to do this. And so the first thing they ask them is, are you going to do a, a free concert? Because the free concert is the is the currency of the time. Right. That's how, you know, you're part of it because they're after Woodstock. You know, the, the Stones show up in New York City like two months after Woodstock. You know, and, and so, OK, you're going to do a free concert and they just aren't going to do it. They won't say they won't say yes. They won't say no. They won't say anything. And and then they're finally asked about it at the New York press conference. And it's, I guess they decided they were going to do it. And I've always maintained I don't have any reason to think it's different to this day that they that it was a good faith trying to do a nice thing. You know, right. as simple as that, you know, OK, you guys really want it. You know, this is something this is cool. Woodstock was cool. I'm sure there was a bit of, well, we'll do our own thing. And, you know, so we won't be left out here, <laughs> you know, uh, but it was basically I'm certain it was just basically well intentioned. Right. And it just went off the rails for all these cultural reasons. You know, uh, you know, it's the, the, the San Francisco wouldn't let them play in San Francisco you know, probably because Ronnie Schneider and Bill Graham got in a fight, you know, 
So Bill Graham wasn't going to let him play in San Francisco. They didn't have a venue. They didn't have a venue 48 hours before it was announced. They had no venue. All the stuff I'm sure you know somewhat about, you know, but, you know, people were coming to the concert, so they had to do it. So the really the uh, the, the only law at Altamont was the show business law of the show must go on. That was the only law. Right. And so the show went on. Right. But it was OK. I, I grew up in San Francisco. I didn't know. I'd never heard of Altamont. Right. You know, Altamont has nothing, couldn't have less to do with San Francisco, but they didn't. If I didn't know it, they really didn't know it. Right. Right. Uh, and so they had the Sears Point Raceway thing. And that was would have been a little bit less sort of out in the Badlands. Right. Which is where Altamont was. But um, no, you know, it, but <laughs> If you figure the 60s, if you do the 60s, it's sort of like, well, it just kept getting better musically, right? Got bigger and better and bigger and better. 63, Rolling Beatles, Rolling Stones, you know, this whole American movement. Not, you know, you're going to do it. It's going to work out. It might be crazy, but it's going to be better than the last one because everything that happened before was better than the thing before. So the assumption was it was just going to be big and great and beautiful. I think it was I think it was well-intentioned. Uh, and it went off the rails because it was because it was out of control. And I think definitely some karma for let's play the devil card. You know, I don't think they ever play sympathy for the devil live again. Do you know what I'm saying? All of that Rolling Stones, you know, Mick, the, Mick is about as, you know, devilish, you know, <laughs> unless the devil is just about being clever right it's not about it's not about um and all of that that was just show business that was just andrew lou Oldham going well if the beatles are the good guys we'll be the bad guys and and they played it to the hilt right yeah they play yeah. it now but it's just an oldie so what's that yeah they but it's, it it's now, oldie but... now right but they didn't for years after that right i think i think that's right i mean i don't go out on the road <laughs> right but 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 i mean they got burned and I think part of that was karmic. I mean, it really was. It's like they were carrying all that dark energy as a projection. And, you know, I have a line from a book, but I like my line. So I'm going to quote myself as, you know, the Hells Angels and Mick Jagger both play, pay homage to the devil, but only one of them is in show business. <laughs> you know, did you feel in peril at that concert? Oh, yeah. by the way? Everybody did. There was you could have died easy. You know, I almost got left behind. I couldn't, you know, I, it, it's just so dramatic. Uh, You're airlifted out of there. I, the, the, the helicopter would not lift off the ground like a helicopter lifts off the ground. It was so overloaded. It was so outside its safety envelope. There were like, there were like 14 people in that helicopter and it was like certified for 10. Wow. We could have died so easy. It was horrible and horrifying and traumatic. Everybody, that that was my experience of doing this book because I really worked hard on this book. Uh, I'll send you a photograph of it or go on my site, you know, and look up the Let It Bleed book. It's massive, right? right? Uh, I have some of the, anyway, it was a massive thing, but the book's always the same. The book's like that by that, you know. Um and I really worked hard. I interviewed everybody and everybody would talk to me and got them to talk about it. The thing was, is that as you're doing that, so that was my writing experience. And, you know, I wanted to be a writer when I was a kid and 
and I did enough work really trying to be a writer that I have a, uh, a respect for anybody who does it. It's a horrible thing to do. And it's unbelievably hard work and God, I hate it. Uh, and, but I did, it. Uh, you know, I did it. And so I was proud of myself for doing it when I did the interviews. Um, people would be the people tended to remember because I interviewed everybody who was on the tour and I gave everybody equal space, you know, Tony, who was the security guy and me and Georgia Bergman, who ran the office and Ronnie Schneider, who was Alan Klein's nephew and Mick wouldn't talk to me. Uh, but Bill Wyman talked to me, Mick Taylor talked to me and, and, you know, everybody had, but they were all placed very Ethan. They were all placed with absolutely equal standing, right? They all got, they all got their interview. They all got the, same they had to say it didn't matter that you were a musician or you were the you were the security guy you all had the same experience and so that was the nature of this because it was so small you know there were only 16 people on that tour that were the principal group there were six rolling stones of your county and steward you know and me and georgia bergman and and stanley booth and uh ronnie schneider you know so tiny right and people would remember the times in Los Angeles and the houses in Los Angeles and what we did in Los Angeles. But when you went out on the road, it was all like, well, was that, you know, it was kind of what you'd expect. Was that Chicago or was that Phoenix? Right. Or was that, you know, was that some other place, you know? Well, I don't know. You know, everybody remembered Altamont to the detail where they were, where they were sitting, what happened. It was, it was truly traumatic. Right. For for everybody, there was nobody I talked talk to that didn't feel like it was traumatic. And, and, you know, Bill Wyman was like, you know, only the, the Rolling Stones are never scared. They only been scared twice in their entire existence. And this was one of them, you know, and the Hells Angels. Are, which, well, that's what, you know, they they knocked out that uh, Jefferson. And, you know, don't fucking insult my people, you know. Yeah, no, it's horrible. Uh, you know, not not wardrobe, not costumes. This is not costumes, you know. And otherwise, you'd 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 been documenting a pretty great tour. It sounds like oh, it was fabulous. The tour was fabulous. You know, uh, Mick Taylor was an unbelievable replacement for Brian Jones. You know, by the time they get to to New York to record the the live album, they're playing like banshees. They're just fabulous, right? And you know, I got that same thing, which is uh, if I'm shooting it, I don't hear it. Wasn't the Chicago show great? I don't know. <laughs> right. But but still, and, you know, it was very tight knit. We were tiny group, you know, and, and I you documented like the peak years of the Stones. I mean, it was I mean, it's like like that's what, 68 to 72 period. Yeah. I mean, that's like, that's what everyone considers. Like, that's the great run. Yeah. And I was there for all of that. I was really like, I got sort of bumped off the tour when, and I love Annie Lou. So, but when Annie, when, when Annie went to Rolling Stone and then Mick realized that if he had Annie shooting it, it went right into media. I was no good at getting sent into media. I didn't have to do that. Right. You know, so, and so Annie, Annie Leibowitz. And then, so, so at a certain point they, and they were, weren't paying Annie and they were paying me. Right. So, you know, no big surprise. It was kind of like, well, look, her. you know, she's, she's a girl, she's great. And she, and it goes right into media. So they kind of went, well, 
So we don't know that we need to carry you anymore. So I did about half of 1972 and it was great. I mean, I got some great shots from, you know, the patients, please photos from 1972 and uh, the whole bunch of stuff from 72 is I, in some ways better than my work in 69. We, were you more aware of the drug use with the stones than with the Beatles? Oh yeah. You didn't have any sense of drug use in the Beatles, but you know, again, when I'm with the Beatles, I'm not, I'm, I'm not alone with the Beatles. I'm alone with the Rolling Stones. It's just us, you know. The Beatles got film crew around. If I'm around them, basically film crews are around, you know. So you're not going to have access to any of that. You know, you hear about it, heard about it later, but I wasn't particularly aware of it. I had no idea if John was doing heroin with the alcohol. I didn't have any idea, right? I was too naive. I never did that stuff, thank God, you know. Uh, so I didn't want to know about it, and they didn't want to tell me about it. It was all worked out fine, you know? But the stones, you were aware of it. Oh, well, you, in 72, you had to be aware of Keith. You know, it was a very drug. It was a very 72 was sort of like people talk about 60s being the drug years. They weren't the drug years. The drug years were the 70s. Right. It sort of started and became sexy in the 60s. Right. Oh, oh right. But but by the time people are really hurting themselves with drugs, especially the 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 people in the the people in the audience it's in the 70s right so the you know it goes from this is the obvious stuff it goes from it goes from marijuana a little lsd to cocaine and harder drugs and people get strung out and keith was definitely strung out you know having doing whatever he's doing you see it in more than i saw because i'm not i was never the kind of photographer that wanted to go you know can i come in here when you don't want me i just didn't do it. And I never shot flash. So there were certain environments that, that wouldn't have been any good if I was in there anyway, uh, because I, I didn't shoot flash. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to take pictures. And anyway, I just didn't do it. When Linda was coming in, Linda Eastman, because yeah. Linda Hartney, when she was shooting, did you two interact? Like, did you talk? Yeah, yeah. And there was no reason not to be friendly, right? I think maybe she wasn't, she didn't like it because she was there first, right? And I showed up, right? And so I don't, I don't know. I don't have any way. Because when Linda became Linda McCartney, first of all, she sort of disappeared. She did, she stopped coming. Right. And I don't I don't know any of the dynamics behind that. But initially, the Beatle book in was going to be both of us, just like the Callaway book is now. Right. Um, and I, I didn't have any feelings about it one way or another. Of course, if she's going to be part of it, I didn't have any I didn't have any thought about being territorial about any of this. You know, it wouldn't have made any sense. Right. Um but but she decided she dropped out. She basically said, OK, I'm not going to be part of the Beatle book. I don't know what the thinking was, but she didn't want to be part of it. So she wasn't part of it. Right. And uh, and that was kind of that. There was not too much more to be said about it. She, you know, they were in love. They got married. They disappeared and they became Linda and, you know, Paul. Right. And then I didn't have anything to do with her after that. But then I didn't. But then it all sort of fell apart and I didn't have anything to do with any. Of them. Right. And there was always a sort of John a little bit. There was this unbelievable John Paul, George Ringo, but John Paul love affair, very tight, important thing. Right. Uh, 
And, you know, but I was definitely more, but there was also a John camp and a Paul camp. Right. And I was, you know, I came in with John and John was, you know, I was close to John. I was never close to Paul. Did you interact much with Yoko? Did she give you kind of artistic notes on what you were doing? No, no. But Yoko, I think Yoko always liked me. Yoko hired me. You know, I did the last footage of them walking in Central Park in Woman. Mm. Right? Uh, and they hired me out of God knows what. And I think um, I think because I was known to them. Right. But when I showed up on the scene, no, Yoko wasn't really Yoko. They were in love. And I I my gag is, is that John liked me because I took good pictures of his girlfriend. And then you shot the Beatles last actual photo session right which was in um the what on john's estate basically right. um he's got the full beard by then and uh that was and, and that i've seen you you sort of talk about how by then it was clear they were just not happy oh they were not happy right uh and so the the i've been working so that's whatever that is that's six months after the end of let it be roughly uh, eight months almost actually uh and i've been working with apple various other apple acts and other stuff and you know right before i went on the road with the stones and uh but you know i was doing whatever i was doing i was working as a photographer at that point and um and that entire so i was told by neil Aspinall that they were they wanted to do a photo shoot and i hired a studio Right. In London. Beautiful studio. And I um, was going to shoot it all in the studio. I spent the whole week planning what I was going to do in the studio. And then the night before this became reminiscent of how, you know, show business and rock and roll became. I got a call saying we're not going to do it in the studio. Ding. We're going to do it at John's house. So so I you know, that was that. And I went down to John's house and I was the principal photographer. They hired a backup photographer from the Daily Mail. Uh, and and I got there. And it was then, then it was, and I didn't know. See, I can tell you now that it's, you got to be careful about doing photo sessions versus photographing something when people are doing something, right? Because a photo session is a pain in the ass, as I've said, it just is, right? And George is pissed off. Uh, you know, I don't think in the entire, however many roles of film I've shot, he smiled once, <laughs> you know, he was, he was like in a bad mood the whole time, right? And, John, it was John's house and they're walking around and it's kind of walking around and taking pictures. And I'm not, that's not my, you know, the idea that I'm supposed to set up a shot of the Beatles. And besides which I, my favorite shot from that session is when I'm down shooting to the Sergeant Pepper statues towards them, you know, and I'm not doing, you know, and all anybody cares about is the Beatles. And I'm like, you know, this looks good with the whole, that whole building in it. You know what I mean? And I'm, that's just, I'm just doing what I do, which is I'm not trying to be clever, but that's the way I shoot. And so to the basic stuff of them getting the force out of the Beatles, which is what the world wants. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm just like trying to take nice pictures, you know? And so we walk around and, and it's pretty, you know, everybody's sort of, you know, it's everybody's walking around and waiting for me to tell them what to do <laughs> and you know and i stand them here and i stand them there and and there's just no energy to it you know there's no and and when i well the the good news with my photography i think is that it lets you be where i was right i don't you know because i try not to change things you get to be there right uh right. You be there and let it be you get to be there and let it bleed you get to be there in the beatles last photo session because i'm not you know i'm not doing stuff even if that's what seems obvious 
the quote client would want. I just don't think like that. Right. And so, um, I, you know, I walked around, we took pictures, but, but, but what you get is you get the feeling of what it was like to be there. Right. And what it was like to be there was not, was not laughter. Now I've got some terrible picture. I don't think I've ever published, uh, from that session. They've got them all now. So, uh, but from that session where they're sort of doing, you know, the four lineup from like magical mystery tour. So what I would never do is, was think that, you know, that's what John Lennon meant when John said, we've done, we're the biggest sellouts that ever were. Right. You know, we've done everything. We've smiled at people and worn ties and suits and, you know, and everybody loved us. But from, if you're John Lennon, that's not who John Lennon is. That's what John Lennon did in the early days of the Beatles. And and so they know that. So if I tell them to, you know, do that, they're going to do it because <laughs> that's right. what done. Right. But I would I, the idea that I would tell the Beatles to behave a certain way is beyond me. Right. And and or the who or the Stones, any of them. And. So we kind of walked around, they kind of did what they did, but the basic vibe was like, this is dreadful, right? And and so, you know, we did the last bit of shooting in, in somebody's house and, you know, and they brought in the acetate of Abbey Road. That was amazing, right? Because mm. it seemed like, you know, Let It Be took, felt like it took forever. And I was not a fan of it for a long time, probably because I just heard it too much when it was being made, you know, uh, and didn't have any appreciation of it as a record that I just bought and took home and listened to. And but then we're, we're sitting there and, and the acetate, which is, you know what that is. It was like a test pressing kind of thing. They put on a they put it on a gramophone right, and played it. And it was like, you know, come together right you know it's all it's abbey road and it's you know it's george martin production and it's like what abbey road is and it was spectacular but that was that's how it ended for me and then i went to and that was the that was the joke i said i told him i was going back to america because i was planning on going back i didn't stick around you know i didn't it was like i wasn't trying to it wasn't like okay i'm shooting the beatles and i'm gonna i'm gonna do this till till they throw me away right I wanted to go home. So I went home. Right. Uh, and, and so I said goodbye. And, and I, I remember it this way because I said goodbye. And they, uh, they said, what are you doing? So I'm going back to America. And they said, okay, you didn't have a great time. And my entire response to that, or my takeaway was they knew my name. That was it. <laughs> you know, yeah. they knew who I was, you know, and, and that felt great, but, but that's kind of where I was at. I didn't have any expectations around it, you know? Did their mood brighten when they listened to, to the Abbey Road acetate, at least? Oh, when they were listening to it, it felt like they were felt like a scene from Get Back. You know, they were just sitting around and listening. You know, it didn't it wasn't a it wasn't like they started to smile all of a sudden. No. But I also think that's the thing about a photo session, which is that why am I you know, they know it's part of the job. You know, as we go into sort of the, you know, music business, they, you know, they, people get smart about it. Madonna gets smart about it. You know, people understand it's very amusing ourselves to so people understand that image is what the culture is becoming because that's what it is. Right. We go from a print culture to an image culture. And in this little window between of time in between that transition, there's music, <laughs> you know, it's pretty television it's pre music video it's pre all of that it's pre the dominance of image as everything that touches us right and 
And that's, I think, an interesting historical fact, right? Um, so they know that it's part, not like people come to know, because now it's like, you know, the teamwork of people doing image, right? It's record companies than every other place. You know, they got art directors and people that are creating brands and doing this and sitting around talking about how to position blah, blah, blah. And it was in between that. So the leeway that you had and the ownership of the material that you had would never be allowed now, I would guess. None of it would be allowed now, right? I mean, I saw something, it wasn't music, but it was... Um, it was an Olympic thing, right? It was a shot of, I think, a snowboarder coming down the thing. And at the bottom of this, at the bottom of this kind of slope was a pie-shaped thing. And in that pie shape were about 25 photographers, right? All shooting over each other's shoulders, right? And there's just no reason whatsoever that shouldn't be a robot. None. Right. You know, that's something that that you, you're giving them no leeway. They, they, you know, they're struggling at an angle. I had that experience because uh, I got put on top of one of the towers at the, in the at the Rolling Stones uh, concert, outdoor concert in Hyde Park. Right. And uh, first of all, it's the only time I ever that was that was my one and only time I ever you know, I ate hash brownies, but I didn't know they were hash brownies. They were offering them to Mick as much because it was a television interview. Mick was much smarter and said, no, no, no. And I thought, I love chocolate. I'm a pig. And so I hate them. And they were spikes. So I was high. So I did a horrible job. I couldn't get an angle. It was just it was that was a one one time lesson. Thank God. So now you go in, you can't take a camera in, you can't take a camera in. Right. If you're a photographer and you're accredited, you're told to stand here. There's nothing about it. I would have nothing to do with it. And people when people I always feel badly about it. People talk to me about um, being a photographer today. There's no there's no career. You know, there's no photographic career. I was, uh, you know, somebody wanted me to shoot something for the New York Times and the New York Times is going to own it. They all own it now. Right. I own my stuff. Right. Uh, so you not only do you don't make any money because partly it's technology because anybody can take a picture now. Right. Because the cameras do 85 percent of the work. Right. Uh, it's simple to do. And if you you have to it's just become just like show business it's just like and i've often thought about it so why people treat people in show business movie business so badly for so long right and they, and they just are horrible towards them right and then they become stars and then they become horrible to everybody else it's just the great cycle it's a great cycle and it's and it's sort of like that with with photography now you if to you have to make yourself a star because what our culture is is now we pay attention to stars that's what we pay attention to and so you have to make yourself a star and then if you're a star then they can't treat you so badly that's about it you know uh but in the interim it's just a horrible thing and so people say they want to be photographers and i go photograph something you love you know own your own stuff right Right. And worry about it later. Be a make your money being a teacher. Make your money doing something else. Being a photographer is is just. A, I mean, there's. It's also become sort of you know blow up was the kind of my version of it, but it's become kind of this kind of sexy, right? So but it's not sexy, and you don't unless you own your stuff, you got nothing, right? So and unless you can control what you do, you don't. You know, otherwise, whose picture is it? 
it's a picture of the guy that decided that they, they could go by the left side of the stage because they didn't need to put a monitor there. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, it's just dreadful. So, yeah, you've talked about like in the seventies when they started talking about it as product, that was you know, like your sign and you know, whatever level it was at at the seventies is at a, it's a much higher level of that now. Right. It's sort of like, it's the same thing was true of film. It's the same thing. You get creative, right? Um, I had a, a close friend called Scott Ross and Scott Ross was one of the original founders of digital domain. Digital domain was James Cameron, Scott Ross and Stan Winston. It was a effect studio. It was one of the first effects. Right. And, and, uh, and I was still strolling along in the music business when Scott's off doing this and, 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 you know, and what happened with music video, because I tried to, because what mattered to me, the thing that was most important to me of that entire era was the singer songwriter. That was the thing that was really different. Right. So you'd had the singer songwriter in blues and you had the singer songwriter in country music. Right. But not in popular music. You know, Elvis wasn't writing his songs. Sinatra wasn't writing his songs. And all of a sudden what happened through Dylan really, who comes, so he comes out of country, right. Becomes electrified, but he's the writer. He's the writer performer. And so the writer performer becomes the sort of the hero for me. Right. And it's a lot based on the writing, the, the writing and the thematic quality of the 12 inch LP that went through that, you know, period of time was to me the writing of, of my generation, if you will. Right. So I was incredibly attached to that and wanted to make that be that's what I felt like I wanted to do that. I wanted to do it in my photography, but I also wanted to do it when I became a filmmaker, not to do music video. They didn't exist. Right. But to try and make films that were based on the writing. And I did it with Ricky Lee Jones, quite a successful one. It was 12 minutes long. It wasn't, a, wasn't a video. Right. And to use the characters that they wrote, take their writing. In other words, let them be the drivers of this, the narrative based upon their writing. And there was such a rich quality of writing in music for that period of time, in my opinion, um, that I thought that was, I, that interested me and I tried to do it. So I was doing that kind of work. Um, and then, you know, and then it became successful and MTV happened. Right. And then all of a sudden you have music video departments. So I'm talking to Scott about this, you know, and, and the kind of ideas they're coming up with, because now all of a sudden that's why I quit because I can't, I can't work like that. And I can't, to me, all the work is in figuring out what you're going to do. The work's not doing it. Right. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not like writing, right. You know, the writing is figuring out what you're going to do and then you go out and do it. Well, then you're just manufacturing, right. Really, you know, it's creative manufacturing with a cameraman and all, a lot of stuff that's really fun to do. Right. Hard work is figuring out what, what you're going to do. And, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, the, the, the way the business d develops is they want directors to give them concepts, right? Well, you know, so, okay, I've got a band, pick a person, you know, and, and they give it out for concepts. That was the business. So write us a concept for Bonnie Raitt. Okay. And so nobody gets paid to do that. Right. That's all free. Right. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is completely wrong. Right. That's that's where the work is. Right. So that process became write us the concept for nothing. We'll decide whether or not we want it. Then we'll fight about how much we'll give you to do it. Right. 
you know, and I just, I went, I'm not doing this anymore, but what I just, I walked away. Um, cause it was horrible. Right. And it was all in the end for the sale of records. Right. It was for the, it was, it was always an advertisement for music to sell records cause they couldn't sell records. Right. Uh, and, and MTV did it and nobody ever got residuals from MTV and all the rest of that. So it was very fat. It was an interesting time because it was so creatively rich. You know, a lot of people were doing incredible work. Right. But it was a dreadful time. And then, so I just got out and, you know, I, I, I say I started, I started with music meaning everything to me and the writers in music meaning everything to me and woke up and, you know, in San Francisco, went to London, got involved with all these people, woke up in Los Angeles in show business, <laughs> you know, right. And I never wanted to be in show business. I didn't have any interest in being in show business. So I left. And, and well, at the same time, it's interesting that the, the, I would imagine that the interest in your work you know, there are probably sometimes where you know there's sort of less of a market for it, and maybe and but like now, there's a lot of interest in it, and obviously get back helps fuel that. There's also a sense of that the the period that you were shooting, it turns out you were shooting the greatest bands in the world at their most iconic periods, and there's uh, there's interest in it in a way that you could not have possibly imagined 50 years ago. Um, quote, more luck than any human being should be allowed to have, close quote, daily beast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I'm, uh, yes. Um, and, and I'm and I'm happy about that, but I'm not ego attached to it. And, you know, I love that. I love that. I love that what I can deliver is what it was like. That's what I love. Right. Right. I love that's what people that. want. Yeah, that's what people want. And, and 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 that sort of makes sense. The work that I did, I did plenty of sort of bad album cover work when I had a period of time in Los Angeles. And, and sort of like nobody cares about any of that. You know, nobody cares about it right? because it's bullshit. There's nothing there. Right. You you know, it's sort of like going, you know, it's sort of, it's a little bit like going, well, look at that. That's a 57 Chevy. So, yeah. <laughs> and so it's great, you know, because it's a 57 Chevy. But you got to like the thing already. There's nothing there to, you know, bring you into it, I guess. I don't know that that's a good metaphor, but I was glad to, I was glad to stop. You know, I was glad to try my hand at writing because that's what I wanted to do. Right. And I came back to San Francisco. I came back to my home. Right. And, and just sort of stuck with it. I'm lucky that I've got my stuff. I'm lucky that I can sell it. I'm lucky that I can exhibit it. And I like the people now. I mean, I'm glad for this, I'm glad to be able to say this stuff to see for people to sort of have a, you know, I'm just one of the guys touching the elephant, but you know, it's still pretty great elephant though. Pretty great elephant. And then if it is an elephant, how do we know what it is? That's still the problem. We haven't solved that, you know, but uh, I'm glad for everybody, you know, and I'm, uh, uh, I'm glad for Peter Jackson. What a great piece of work. And I'm hoping for Michael to get the credit he's due for the obvious reasons. You know, none of those, those, those pictures didn't invent themselves. You know, the great thing about that period of time for me, other than the music was that it was kind of a, a, a humanism. That was the sort of the driver's, sort of like a, a kind of ersat spiritual humanism was kind of the driving force of it, at least from the sort of, it was rock and roll, 
you know, rock and roll is great. Rock and roll is Little Richard. Rock and roll is Chuck Berry. Rock and roll is this great thing that's music. But in this period of time, it grew into this other kind of uh, sort of humanist spiritual thing that I thought was just great. Right. And so um, I was glad to be able to participate in that and show what it was. That's all. And, and again, you have these figures who are totally like put on these pedestals as our legends. But in your work, as well as in just get back what Peter Jackson did, you're seeing them as people. And yeah. that's what's so revelatory about it is that you're seeing them. These are creative people doing creative work. And what happened to it then got blown up into this whole other lofty thing. But at the heart of it, it's people. And you get at the I hate it. Show business kills people. This is well established, right? It's established since the 30s, right? I'm a little person here and I have this talent and I bring it to the public. I get ego identified with this talent. It makes money. The people that want to continue to have it make money continue to sort of improve upon who I am so that it can continue to make money. And I get lost and I end up taking drugs and die, overwork and die. That's the cycle, right? Mm-hmm. Show has always done that, right? And that's why I hate it, right? And the other part of it is, isn't it just much better for us to go, oh, guess what? Human beings make this. <laughs> this is made by right. human beings who put their trousers on one leg at a time. That's the thing you want to celebrate, right? You don't want to celebrate this fucking package, Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This has been fantastic to talk to you. I really gotten so much out of it. I hope that everyone will sort of pick up, get back and your, your other books and just take a look at your yeah. work and keep it open while you're listening to this. Cause it's really fantastic stuff. EthanRussell.com. Simple as that. You can buy books and you can buy limited edition prints and it's kind of fun. And uh, you know, and I, there's a couple of blog pieces I wrote before I realized that it takes way too long for me to write a blog piece to give away. So, but some of them are nice about the, you know, some of them are actually, there's five of them there and they're actually kind of fun. Nope. You know, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and I hope, uh, I hope to cross paths with you again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. And, and good luck to your family and all of that. God bless. That's a wrap on episode 14 of Carol Pop. Thanks to Ethan Russell for the fantastic conversation about how he created such indelible images while working with some of the greatest musical artists of all time. The Beatles Get Back book, which features hundreds of previously unpublished images from Ethan Russell as well as Linda McCartney, is widely available. You also can buy his fine art books, which feature his photos of the Rolling Stones and many others at ethanrussell.com. Thanks, as always, to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and to Lou Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who never throws away his shot. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks. Thanks.